Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the measuring rod of your word. Lord, we thank you that your word sets the standard, not the world, not the flesh, not the devil. Lord, it is your word and your word personified in Jesus Christ where we find your standards. And Lord, when we measure ourselves against your standards, we find ourselves falling woefully short. Lord, I pray that this morning you would work in our hearts to measure ourselves by your word and to see where we're lacking. Lord, I pray that for those of you who do know you as Lord and Savior, that we would find confidence in the gospel, we would find strength in the gospel. Lord, that we would confess our failings to you and come to you with hearts of repentance, asking you to do that work in our hearts to change us, Lord, to make us more like Jesus Christ. And Lord, there might be those here this morning who do not know you as Lord and Savior. Lord, and as they measure themselves by your word, Lord, they realize that they are living lives that are, are, are lived for the world, for the flesh, and for the devil. Lord, I pray that you would do a work of repentance in their hearts as well. Lord, that you'd help them to turn from their sin and be saved. Lord, I pray that we would come away this morning, each one of us, knowing you more, knowing ourselves more, and knowing that we can have righteousness in Jesus Christ alone. We pray all of these things in his most precious name. Amen. So last week I focused on the first half of James chapter 3, looking at the tongue, and, and I talked about how we need to, to guard our tongue, or more importantly, we need to, to guard our hearts or even allow God to kill our hearts, that we need new hearts, we need, we need God to do a work in our hearts to take out from us the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh to change our desires from those which are bent on self to those that instead are bent on God and loving one another. And this morning, I'm going to focus in on the latter half of, of James chapter 3 from verses 13 to 18, where James outlines for us what wisdom really is. And he compares and contrasts worldly wisdom with godly wisdom. Now, wisdom is a hot commodity. It's valued in the church, and it's valued in the world. Wisdom will get you far in this life. But we have to be very careful because there are two different kinds of wisdom. There is godly wisdom, and there is worldly wisdom. The world calls, calls godly wisdom foolish, and the, and the word calls worldly wisdom sinful. I'll say that again. The world calls godly wisdom foolish, and the word calls godly wisdom sinful. So the world and the church have very different understandings of what wisdom really is. They have a different understanding of what it looks like and where it comes from. And either wisdom, either kind of wisdom gets results, but only one of them glorifies God. It's only the wisdom that comes from God that can possibly glorify God. Now, we all want things out of life. 
Maybe you want a new job or a promotion when you get that job. Maybe you want a husband or wife and you want selfless behavior from them when you get that husband or wife. Maybe you want leadership opportunities and maybe you want respect when you actually get that leadership opportunity. And none of these things are wrong in and of themselves. But we need to ask the question, how do you go about getting those things? And why do you really want those things? And I trust that James has a lot to say to us this morning about those very facts. So do you actively, if you're looking for work, do you actively seek a job? And then when you get the job, do you work as unto the Lord? Or instead, do you flatter your boss and serve him with eye service only when he's actually paying attention? If you want to get married, do you pray that the Lord would provide you with a godly spouse? And then do you strive to be godly yourself, seeking to live a life for God and serving whether single or married? Or instead, do you flirt with the opposite sex and then try, or try to dress immodest, immodestly or act cool in order to win them and then pout or get angry when they don't behave the way that you want them to behave? Or if you're wanting leadership, do you like to put yourself out there and be very quick to, to spout off your opinion? Or instead, do you humbly sit and quietly listen and serve in ways that are kind of behind the scenes and let, let others recognize that you're showing wisdom by the way you live your life? Now, it's very likely that you would get a promotion if you flatter your boss and serve him with eye service. It's very likely that you could get a husband or wife by flirting and dressing immodestly. It's very likely that you get your way in marriage if you pout or get angry. It's very likely that you would get placed in a leadership position in many churches if you put yourself out there. But you see, the, the thing that drives us in each of those cases, when we're doing it sinfully, when we're doing it in a fleshly way, when we're doing it in worldly wisdom, we're just, even though those things might have an outward veneer of, of being good and on being good desires, but we're showing that our wisdom is worldly. And so if you, if you get a promotion by flattering your boss, all you've really done is feed his pride. If you get a husband or wife by flirting or dressing immodestly, you're going to find yourself married to a person that is going to be very, very difficult to live with and is going to be, have their head turned by others who are acting in the same way. If you pout when you don't get your way in marriage, then you're going to find that the people are walking on eggshells and they don't really want to be around you but they will do what you want just to avoid a problem. Likewise, if you find yourself in a church that, that looks at things in a worldly way and values the types of qualities that the world says are valuable, you're going to find yourself in a church that is not going to point you to God. It's just going to point you to the world. Now, maybe these scenarios describe you, and maybe they don't, but each one of us in the situations that we find ourselves in life, we need to ask ourselves, what do I want here and how am I going to go about getting it? 
What do I want here and how am I going to go about getting it? And when you answer those questions, you will reveal whether your wisdom is worldly or whether your wisdom is godly. So one type of wisdom comes from above, the other from below. One type of wisdom is spiritual, the other is fleshly. One is a gift from God, the other is demonic. One is selfless, the other is self-seeking. One brings peace, the other brings disorder. One spreads righteousness, the other spreads wickedness. So what kind of wisdom characterizes your life? We need to listen to what James has to say to us this morning. In this passage, he's going to show us exactly what godly wisdom looks like. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we're looking at the the way that that James uses the word justified in James uh, chapter 2, verses 21 and 24, and I quoted Matthew 11, 19, where Jesus says, wisdom is justified by her deeds, as the ESV translates it. Or in the NIV, wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Wisdom is revealed by what it does. Alec Motyer says that James here does not tell us anything about what we must actually do, any course of conduct to follow. He offers us an ethic not of verbs, do this, or of nouns, naming this or that item of good conduct, but of adverbs about the sort of person that we are to be whenever we do what we do. In other words, James doesn't tell us here what wisdom does or what it is, but it shows us what it produces in those who have it. It shows us what wisdom produces in those who have it. So James here contrasts godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom in five key areas. He contrasts its orientation, its origin, its openness, its offensiveness, and its order. Its orientation, its origin, its openness, its offensiveness, and its order. So first of all, James asked the question, who is wise and understanding among you? Now it seems from the context that there was actually people in the church that were putting themselves forward wanting to be teachers, and they were spouting off about how wise they are. So James asked the question, do you want to know who is really wise? He says in the NIV, let him show it by his good life. Let him show it by his good life. So what do you think of when you think of the good life? Maybe it's relaxing by a pool in a lounge chair, drinking a cold drink with an umbrella in it, or fishing on a mountain lake, or a nice dinner with your family gathered around the table. And all of these are very nice things, but this is not the good life that James has in mind. He's thinking instead of a life that is focused on the glory of God, as is demonstrated in the life of the church. So the ESV here says his wisdom will be revealed by his good works. This should remind us of what James has said back in chapter 2.18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Show me, James says, show me your wisdom by your good works. So then he goes on into detail, contrasting worldly wisdom in verses 14 to 16 and godly wisdom in verses 17 to 18. 
First of all, we see that worldly wisdom and godly wisdom are differ, they differ in their orientation. They differ in their orientation. Godly wisdom is focused on God and others, while worldly wisdom is focused on self. So James says here, show your works in the meekness of wisdom. The meekness of wisdom. Now the NIV translates it humility, but I don't think that's the best word here. The, the Greek is actually the word proutes, proutes, which is best translated as meekness. Now meekness is one of those old words that we don't really use very much anymore, so it's often misunderstood in our culture. I know for many years I thought that, that, that meekness was essentially a synonym for weakness, but it really couldn't be any further from the truth. Meekness is actually best described as, as controlled strength. So think here maybe of a, of a person with a black belt who goes into the, the convenience store to get a pack of gum. And while he's in there, he's being harassed by a couple of young punks. And they're kind of prodding at him and, and poking, poking him and, and calling him names. Now, if he wanted to, he could knock them both out with one punch. But in meekness, he doesn't do it. He doesn't have any need to prove his strength. So he doesn't have to react to what other people are doing. That's meekness. Moses was called the most, the most meek person on the planet. He was the most meek person on the planet in Numbers 12.3. He was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. This is the same Moses who called down plagues and parted the Red Sea with his staff. But he interceded for his, his brother and his sister when they rebelled against his authority. That's meekness. That's meekness. He interceded for them. But the greatest example of meekness is Jesus Christ himself. Think of the, the king of the universe coming down to a sinful creation and then taking on a servant's clothing and washing the dirty, smelly feet of his disciples. But that wasn't the end of his meekness. He actually humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross. He held still and allowed those Roman soldiers to drive those spikes through his wrists and his feet when he could have destroyed them with a thought. That's meekness. The world calls that foolishness. But God's word says that that is a, a high characteristic. It is something that we are to strive for as we strive to be like Jesus Christ. So the one that shows his works in the meekness of wisdom doesn't need to prove that he's right. He likely has the right answers, but he doesn't need to broadcast it. He's content to wait until he's asked for his opinion. And if the person really is wise, then don't worry, people will ask for his opinion. He realizes that he's not in competition with anybody else. This, this, doesn't have, this person doesn't have to, to prove that he's right. He has nothing to prove. He has nothing to prove. Whereas the person who is, is proud and has worldly wisdom has to broadcast how much they know. They want to be the center of attention. 
They crave for people to come to them. But the person that's wise knows that it's not just the right word, but it's also the right word at the right time. Proverbs 25.11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Those of us who are reading the, the McShane Bible reading plan together just finished studying the, the book of Job last week. Now, you have to be very careful reading Job because much of it is, is the actual, is the, the, the so-called comfort from Job, Job's so-called comfort, comforting friends who, who were, were slandering God and slandering Job by, by the way that they were broadcasting half-truths. So you need to be very careful when you read it. But there towards the end of Job, we have Job in chapter 32, we have Elihu. Now Elihu, as we know from the text, was a younger man. And he waited patiently, and I would say meekly, until the older men were finished their, their ranting. And then he speaked up, spoke up and rebuked Job and rebuked his friends and glorified God. Now, interestingly, at the end of the book, when the Lord speaks and questions Job for questioning him and sharply rebukes his so-called friends, Elihu isn't mentioned here. So, so I believe that, there, that what's happening here is you're, you're actually finding tacit approval for Elihu's diatribe against those men. But Elihu knew the Lord's character and he knew his place. He knew his place, so he was content to sit quietly until the proper time to speak came up. And he focused most of what he was talking about on the glory of God. He focused on the glory of God. But wisdom, on the other hand, is self-oriented. James says in verse 14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Now, James is making a clear connection here with what he had said in verses 1 to 11 in the first half of the chapter. And, the, and what he's talking about, the heart and the tongue. Sorry, verses 1 to 12. He uses the same adjective, pikros, that is translated here as bitter. In verse 11, it's translated salty, as in salty water. Now, salty water was often referred to as bitter in that you cannot drink it. It provides no refreshment. Bitter water provides no refreshment. Likewise, the bitter person does not provide any refreshment. James says, James likely has Psalm 110 verse 7 in mind. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression and under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Jealousy led to the first murder when Cain was jealous of Abel's sacrifice and slew him. Jealousy is listed as a work of the flesh in Galatians 20 and is one of the sinful issues that Paul was concerned about in the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 12, 20. The proud and selfish person sees other people as either, either being in their way or as a means to an end. So people may be in the position that you want to be in. Or maybe they're doing something that you don't think that they should be doing. So you engage in character assassination. Or maybe you butter people up so that they'll like you and put you in a position of honor. 
and they'll give you the authority that you crave. But don't miss the connection here with, with chapter 4. Selfish ambition and jealousy, and jealousy or covetousness breed war in the church. They breed war in the church. We'll be talking about that next week, that people fight and argue with each other because they're all selfish. So if you're seeking unity, if you're seeking unity, there will be no discord. If you're focused on the glory of God and serving and loving other people, you'll be built up together for the glory of God. There's always a danger in the church for certain factions forming around various teachers. Paul spoke of that in the Corinthian church. Quite often, teachers who see themselves as important will flatter other people and and try to get groups to gather around them and then split off from other groups. It happens in churches all the time. So we all, not just the leadership, but all of us need to fight against that. And we hear character assassination. When we hear people trying to put themselves up, especially by putting others down, we need to lovingly and gently but firmly rebuke them. Rebuke them. And tell them that they are sowing discord by what they're doing. But you see, so often we, we in our flesh enjoy it. We like getting those tidbits of information. So instead of, of killing it right there, we spread it. We spread it. So we need to be very careful of those who would seek to be teachers by putting themselves in front. James said instead that, we, that not many should seek to be teachers. And he said that, we're, that we who teach are going to be judged by a higher standard. Sorry, not by a higher standard, but judged more strictly, the same standard. And even as, as two weeks ago in my preparation for my sermon, I was being convicted for my sin, the same was true this week. And as I looked through the, this list of, of sinful displays of worldly wisdom, I was reminded, oh, you do that. Yeah, you do that too. Yep, you do that one as well. And if we're honest with ourselves and we're honest with the Lord, each one of us do that. Each one of us are capable, more than capable, of of living out worldly wisdom. And instead of living for unity and the glory of God, we sow discord and dishonor God. But remember from from last week, we talked about those sins of the tongue come from a wrong heart. So if you find yourself convicted, and I pray that you are convicted for the things that you do that dishonor God in that way, the way to deal with it is not, it's not just to try to stop. You could put duct tape over your mouth. You could cut out your tongue. But the problem is still going to exist because it's a heart problem. So you need to go to God and confess your sins and ask him to change your heart. Ask him to help you to to seek his glory and to love other people. We can't do this on our own. We can't do it in our own strength. We need to put off jealousy and selfish ambition and to put on the opposite attitude, counting others as more worthy than ourselves. As the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, 
Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant of your, uh, than yourselves. And when you do that, by the grace that God provides, God will get great glory for himself, and you will find that you will grow and the church will grow. Next, we see that, that they differ in origin. Worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom differ in origin. Godly wisdom comes from above. Remember, back in James 1.5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. So trust God. If you seek wisdom, this is a promise that God will give it to you because it's based on his good character. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Fellow Christian, God is our Father in heaven, and our Father delights in giving his children good gifts. And one of the greatest gifts that he gives in this life is wisdom. In 1 Kings 3, when the Lord appeared to Solomon and told Solomon that he could have anything that he wanted, Solomon asked for wisdom. And the Lord was pleased that he hadn't asked for long life or riches or vengeance on his enemies. And so he said to Solomon in verses 12 to 14, Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has... or so that none like you has been before you, and none shall be like you after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And I will walk with you, sorry, and if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Now people from all around came to marvel at Solomon's wisdom. Much of the book of Proverbs is, is written by Solomon. We just finished on Friday nights going through the Proverbs in their family night. All through the book of Proverbs, we see the wisdom of God exalted. In Proverbs 2, verses 1 to 6, Solomon writes, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Solomon knew that because he had experienced it personally. He had been promised wisdom from God, and God gave it to him. But Solomon should have known, he did know, that, that the promise was tied to a, 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 um, a precept from God that he had to walk in obedience, that he had to obey God. And so we read throughout the, the book of, of 2 Kings the things that Solomon did that dishonored God, that shamed God, as Solomon had been, been warned by God not to go after the heathen women. But Solomon did as he had 
countless wives and concubines and then followed after them into their vile practices, into their idolatry. And it wasn't until the end of his life when he repented. If we didn't have the book of Ecclesiastes, we would wonder whether Solomon was indeed saved because of the vileness of the sins that he committed and his seemingly life of, a seeming life of unrepentance. But we know that he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes as an old man and turned back to God and saw the foolishness of what he had done. So godly wisdom can only come from God. And if your wisdom does not come from God, it is worldly, unspiritual, and demonic. And here James identifies the Christian's three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. As we said at the outset, the world defines success very differently, very differently from the way that the Christian does. It could probably be characterized, success could be characterized by the world as having a fit body and a fat bank account. The world tells you that the ends justify the means. And if the ends justify the means, there's really not very much that's off limits when it comes to seeking your ends. Now, the Lord may bless you with good health. The Lord may bless you with wealth. But if you set those things as your goal, they will quickly usurp God on the throne of your hearts and they will become idols. And you will be willing to do whatever it takes in order to get them, even to practice worldly wisdom. Furthermore, if you seek those things for your own pleasure, then those things will ultimately destroy you. If God gives you good gifts, they're to be used for his glory, not for yourself. They're to be used for God's kingdom, not your kingdom. Next, we see the flesh. The flesh wants us to use God's gifts selfishly. The flesh tells you to live for pleasure. It tells you to use a fit body to, to seduce members of the opposite sex. It tells you to use a fat bank account to indulge in selfish pleasure. Paul warned in Romans 8.13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You will die. Next, the devil. The devil is opposed to everything that God loves. He despises honesty. He despises hard work and selflessness and kindness and love, to name a few. Jesus said of the Pharisees in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. It was out of envy that the Pharisees delivered Jesus over to death. Envy killed Jesus. So we should hate it when we see it in others, and we should hate it when we see it in ourselves. Next, we see that the two types of wisdom differ in their openness. They differ in their openness. James said in 3.14 that those who practice worldly wisdom should not boast and be false to the truth. 
They shouldn't boast and be false to the truth. He said in 3.5, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. The tongue is powerful. It's powerful. And proud people like to use their tongues to tell everybody about what they've done. Proud people don't ever want to find out about other people. They're busy to express their victories the things that they have accomplished. And God doesn't get the glory. By acting in this way, they're actually denying the truth. They're denying the truth. To walk in jealousy and selfish ambition is to disregard the second half of the great commandment that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Because they love themselves and love talking about themselves. And really, by doing that, they're also disobeying the first half. They're not loving the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength. God can barely get a look in because they're focused on themselves, that they love more than anything else. It's simply rebellion against the God who, of his own will, brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So if God has indeed brought you forth, made you born again through the spirit-empowered preaching of his word, then you are to be a first fruit of his creatures. You are to live a life that is to be for God's glory and the good of others, not for your glory and the good of yourself. Godly wisdom, on the other hand, is open to reason. It's open to reason, or as the King James says, it is easily entreated. The person who exercises such wisdom that they they won't be focused on what they want to say, that they'll actually take the time to listen to others, what others have to say. They humbly see themselves as being, being able to learn from others. Beloved, each one of us is able to, to learn from the newest, youngest Christian in our congregation. None of us has the market cornered on truth. There's not any area in which we can't grow and change. We all have places that, that we're off doctrinally, and God will use his word and it will use others in order to change our thinking, to help us to grow in the truth. And we all need to grow in the truth. Yesterday when I was, I was talking to, to Lucille in the hospital, and here she is almost 90 years old, and talking about the way that, that God is, is changing her. She says the way that, that God is not finished with her, that, that she is seeing her sinfulness and growing. And if that is true from Lucille, one of the, the godliest saints that I've ever met, then surely that's true of each one of us. We need to take the time to learn from one another, to hear what God would say to us through each other. James said in 121, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So as we speak God's word into each other's lives, some of us are going to grow and some of us are going to get saved. Next we see that godly wisdom and worldly wisdom differ in their offensiveness. They differ in their offensiveness. 
worldly wisdom is offensive to God and his followers. And I know you can, you can think of times when, when you've heard people that were, were spouting off their own, their own achievements or, or speaking in pride, and you could smell it a mile away, and it stinks to you. It stinks. But I pray that our own pride, I pray that my own pride would be a stench in my nostrils as well as, as the stench in, in, of other people's pride stinks to me. Because we all have it. We all have it. Worldly wisdom is easily offended because it's self-oriented. It sees differences of opinion, of opinion as a tax on them personally. Because it's not confident in the truth itself, it sees any kind of disagreement as something against them personally. And so they have to strive to, to defend their position. They don't have a confidence that comes from a knowledge of, of God and a, an assurance of their salvation. They don't have a confidence in the things that they know, so they have to, to go around t- telling everybody what they know. And it's possible here to be 100% right and 100% wrong at the same time. You know, when I first began to understand God's sovereignty, I would go around stirring up debates and arguments wherever I went because although I knew it in my head, I didn't have wisdom in how to apply those truths. And by the way that I was going around trying to, in my pride and my strength, convince everybody of what I knew, I was actually denying the very truths that I was professing. It's not enough just to know things. It's not just enough just to know it. You have to know how to use that knowledge. That's wisdom. When I was a phys ed teacher, I knew all about the mechanics of throwing a ball and about how, where you have to, to start with, with your, your wind-up and how you have to start with your, your weight on your back foot and then shift your weight and follow through. I could break down the mechanics of it, but I could have all the knowledge in the world and that will never get me drafted as a pitcher with the Blue Jays. You have to have practical knowledge of how that works out. You have to, to train those, those skills. You have to apply that knowledge and let it grow and build until it becomes wisdom. Because wisdom is really essentially applied knowledge. Godly wisdom is, is offensive on the other hand, godly wisdom is offensive to the devil and his followers. The theme of wisdom versus foolishness is throughout 1 Corinthians. It's, it's a common theme. We've been talking about that, that on Friday nights. And you'll see wisdom and foolishness and power and strength are, are there next to each other, throughout, the, especially chapters 1 and 2. God has chosen the things the world calls foolish to shame those that the world calls wise, 127. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's wisdom to those who are being saved, 118. And it all points to Jesus Christ, who is himself the power and wisdom of God, 124. Those who are followers of Christ will increasingly look like Christ. Those who are truly born again, those who have been regenerated, those who have been given new hearts, will increasingly look like Jesus Christ. 
They will exhibit the fruit of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is active in them, changing them, giving them new hearts and new desires, and, and helping them to love God and love others. The Holy Spirit is transforming those who have him into the image of Jesus Christ. So the list of, of godly fruits of wisdom that we see in James chapter 3 should look familiar to us. So things like, like peace, things like uh, gentleness, being reasonable, being merciful, showing good fruit, being impartial and, and sincere, those things should look familiar to us because they run very parallel to the list of good fruits of the Holy Spirit that you find in, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But there's another reason that that list should look familiar to you. They should look familiar because you can see it in the lives of many of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You see those things growing. You see them abounding here, right here in our midst. I see it in many of you. I see it. It's amazing in the last couple of years, the growth in unity that I have seen in this church the growth in godliness that I have seen in this church. It's amazing, but it really shouldn't be amazing. Because this is what God's word does in the power of his Holy Spirit. You see, when there's, when there's selfishness and bitter envy, and those, those fruits of, of worldly wisdom, you see discord. You see, disorder, because everybody wants their own thing. Everybody's really striving for what they want. So we see here, finally, that, that godly wisdom and worldly wisdom differ in their order. They differ in their order. Godly wisdom brings order, whereas worldly wisdom brings disorder. Because as people go after what they want, remember the, the, the teachers that I talked about that heap up people after themselves to tickle their itching ears and create factions around themselves, they create schism, they create disorder. But see here that, that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, verse 18. You see, when we want to glorify God, when glorifying God is our goal, not glorifying self, we realize that we're actually on the same team. We realize that we actually want the same things, and so we strive side by side to achieve the same goals. So if somebody is gifted in a particular area, we say, praise God, go for it. We encourage them in that area. We don't see them as a threat. We don't see them as a hindrance to getting what we want. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses, verses 1 to 4, verse, sorry, verses 1 to 6, Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6, we sang about it this morning. We sang the church has one foundation. You see that again and again, the word one is repeated, one body, one spirit, 
one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who has given each one gifts for the building up of the body. So each one comes together as part of a whole to glorify God. We seek his glory and each other's good. That's what we're called to do. And when you have a situation where people are exercising godly wisdom, that will be the natural result. Growth in unity and growth in grace will result. They will result. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, we see here that once we were divided from God, once we were divided from other people, but in verse, well, verse 19, we are no longer strangers and aliens. We are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of, of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's built on the foundation of God's word. With Jesus Christ himself being the, chief, being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So we are being built together with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone who sets the lines for the building and the, the apostles and the prophets laying the foundation, everything, the body of Christ being built up in those things. Peter writes about the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2 where he says in verse 4, you come to him as a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So just as Jesus Christ was the, the rock, and then he became he was the, the cornerstone that the builders rejected, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We too are chips off the old block. We who are in Christ are being made living stones. And just as Jesus Christ is the archetypical high priest, we also have become a royal priesthood. We are a royal priesthood and we offer spiritual sacrifices. Now the spiritual sacrifices here are no longer the blood of lambs and bulls and goats, but the spiritual sacrifice is a life of holiness, a life that is dedicated to glorifying God and lo by loving Him and loving other people. But notice here that these, these spiritual sacrifices are only acceptable to God through Jesus Christ that even in the best of our good works, even in the best things that we do, there's still, going to be, there's still going to be a spark of selfishness. It's still going to be there. So we, we still, even when we're doing our good deeds, we're still utterly dependent on the grace of Jesus Christ. We're still under, utterly dependent on the righteousness of Christ applied to us. But as I said, I see these things growing in us. 
I see God changing us and making us increasingly one in Christ. Now, just as, as last week I explained that words that our words have great power, power for good or power for evil, and I explained how, how real faith won't result in words that, that tear down, but in words that build up. And I said that, that most, if not all of us, can remember hurtful things that other people have said to us over the years. But I said also that we are far less likely to remember the things that we have said that have hurt others. But earlier this week, I was, I was talking with Dylan, and he was, was saying that he was talking about in the same way that, that words ha- could be used to tear down, that someone's words built him up. And he, he remembered how quite a long time ago, Joel actually came to him and talked to him about the way that he sees Dylan growing. The way that he sees Dylan becoming more godly and changing and maturing. And he took the time to encourage Dylan with that. And Dylan remembered that and it spurred him on to grow even more. So if if you are seeking the glory of God, if you are seeking the best for one another, you'll be very, very careful to watch your tongue and to measure your tongue by what God's word says your tongue should be saying. And to realize, as I've had to do this week, that when we, when I say things that are hurtful to other people, that there's a problem in my heart that I need to repent of. And then I need to go to God and ask him for the strength to help me to obey and to help me instead to encourage each other. So I pray that that we would be characterized by that. That we as a church would be characterized by seeking opportunities to glorify God by encouraging each other. By instead of using our words to tear other people down, we would use our words to build other people up for their good and for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, I'm conscious of how desperate I am for your grace, even at this moment. And Lord, I know that that is true for each one of us here. We all need your grace. We all need your strength to exhibit the wisdom that you give. Lord, we all need your strength to strive for the things that you say are valuable. To reject the things that the world, the flesh, and the devil crave. Lord, I pray that you would help us to love one another with the type of love that Christ had for us when he laid down his life for us. Lord, I pray that you would do that by your grace and for your glory and for a testimony to a watching world. We ask this all in the most powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.